Scripture reading comes from Luke 2, verses 29 through 34. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome to Grace and Peace Church. I am Vincent Hoppy. I'm the pastor here. In the past two weeks, we've uh, preached and we've learned uh, through Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 61 something about Jesus and what we are waiting for. Uh, as I thought about this and we were coming, I, I actually had a different scripture text until this week and I was thinking about like what we should preach on, what we needed to hear and reflecting on things like the pandemic and Advent. I started thinking about myself, like, what did I need to hear? And so I actually preached this sermon two years ago, and I brought it back because I thought it was important and actually reveal something about myself, uh, and especially in the pandemic. And so as much as I may be uh, preaching God's word to you, I'm preaching to myself. So Advent is this time of waiting, it's reflection, we mourn and we grieve and we long. During this time we reflect on the things that we desire most and hope for and we talk to ourselves and we think to ourselves, why do I like that? Why do I want that? Why is it that thing? What do I feel insecure about in my life? Or what is upsetting in my life that makes me point to that thing to say, this is what I need. This is my savior of some sort. It's the assertion of Christianity that we are, as humanity, we are desiring beings. And we all wait on a savior to put this world and our lives to rights. We desire to have our lives, our shame, our guilt, our relationships be put to rights. But for now, in this time, until God returns in Jesus Christ, we mourn. We grieve. We're saddened about the things that just aren't and should be. We are upset and we mourn the loneliness and isolation we feel. Broken relationships. Mean words spoken by other people. Mean words we say. We cry about wayward family. Systemic injustice. Neighbors sleeping in the streets. Children with no Christmas. Those dying alone with coronavirus. Don't get me wrong. Christians are not the only ones hoping for a Savior. We all have something that we're looking to or we're longing for to put this world to rights. Everybody. It could be technology. It could be medicine. Could be progress, could be the next hundred dollars I get. We're all looking for something to put things to rights. And we look for something to keep our world upright, 
to make ourselves substantial, to make ourselves credible, valid in our existence, that we're real. Advent is a reminder, though, that God cares. He hears our mourning. He knows our isolation. And he came and is coming back to put all things to right, including your identity. He comes to make you substantial, make you valid, make you strong, so that when things like a pandemic happen, you won't be blown over. You have an anchor. You can be strong. And so Simeon's song teaches us that this salvation, the thing that we are longing for is Jesus himself and he is what is going to make us substantial. And when you embrace him and he is the cornerstone of your identity, when he is the anchor for your soul, then things like a pandemic aren't going to blow you over, although you may get tossed to and fro, trust me. This longing, though, is clearly expressed. This longing that you and I have, that all of us feel, Christian and unchristian, Presbyterian and pagan alike, is expressed very clearly in this advice column for the cut. It was out a few years ago. And it is entitled this, I'm broke, mostly friendless, and I've wasted my whole life. The advice seeker writes, Dear Polly, I feel like a ghost. The 35-year-old woman goes on to tell her friend about, or tell, tell her about the failed relationship she's had, her pointless jobs, moving to find adventure only to go deeper into debt. She writes this, I truly feel like a ghost. No one knows who I am or where I've been. I haven't kept a friend, lover, or foe around long enough to give anyone a chance. What's the point? I don't care for my job. I'm not building toward anything. I don't have the time or money to really invest in what I care about anyway at this point. On top of that, society is telling me my value as a woman is fading fast. My wrinkles require Botox. Uh, reference said poor finances. All the while, my manager is asking me to finish that report by Monday. Why bother? My apathy is coming out in weird ways. I'm drinking too much, and when I do see my friends on occasion, I end up getting drunk and angry or sad or both and pushing them away. And with men I date, I feel pressure to make something of the relationship too soon. Move in. Get married. I have to have kids in a couple of years. Fun times. All the while, still trying to be the sex pot 25-year-old I thought I was until what seemed like a moment ago. I used to think I was the one who had it all figured out. Adventurous life in the city, traveling the world, making memories. Now I feel incredibly hollow. Foolish. How can I make a future for myself that I can get excited about out of all these wasted years? What reserves or identity can I draw from when I feel like I've accrued nothing up to this point with my life's choices? She has this earned identity. And this earned identity has made her what? Feel wispy like a ghost. 
She's vaporous. She lacks real substance, as if she would be blown away in a moment and no one would notice and realize or even care that she existed at all, ever. One major life storm, and she will be swept away. She feels all alone, ignored, insignificant, and the pandemic, though, has exposed many of us the same way. What we thought was going to be the job that was going to make us a somebody suddenly was non-essential. What we thought was going to be the relationship, to end all relationships, turned out to be just another mismatch. And the pandemic has exacerbated this. Made us feel more lonely. Make us spend more time watching Hallmark Netflix shows, realizing that just like her, I too am terrible at my job, and maybe what I need to do is run off into the rural countryside for a weekend, get snowed in, and there I will meet my beau, and he'll be handsome and dashing. You know, what that does is just realize, if that, that connects with you, helps you realize that maybe there's a longing in your heart to be loved and noticed apart from your job, apart from your reputation on social media, apart from how good your grades are. You need something substantial and it can't be earned by you. It must be received. It must be given to you. But we live in a society now where everything is earned, where I need to discover it. I need to make myself somebody. I need to do me. I need to be me. You do you, we say. But yet all that has ended up where? And maybe this pandemic and this advent ought to cause us to stop and try to figure out why it is that we desire the things that we do. And I know what you're probably saying. Oh, come on, this ghost lady, she's a millennial. She's, she's, she's young, idealistic, fragile. Sure, okay, call her names. Call her names. I mean, you can't ignore the longing, the mourning, and what she feels, and this is what we all long for. It's to have our lives matter, to have real weight, to have substance in our lives, that, to, to, uh, have that, that this is actually valid. We want our relationships put right. We want to be valuable. We want to be seen as worthwhile. We wish that someone would notice us. We need someone to fix this broken world and our broken lives. We all long for it, and no generation is immune to this longing. Everyone in this room, and everyone watching online, and everyone scrolling on Facebook, we all, want, we all long for better relationships with our children. Some of us feel like we're a million miles away from the person we share a bed with. Maybe it is some of us are living in perpetual fear of being found out, found out that you're not as smart as you put off, not as financially secure as you tell everyone, not as popular, not as self-assured as your TikTok makes you seem. What this all is making us feel and what the pandemic has made us feel is feel insecure in our lives. It's made us feel hollow and empty. Think about how the pandemic has highlighted this. We try to make ourselves matter or we deny the pain that we're feeling in the emptiness by, by filling it with jobs, marriage, romance, 
reputation, food, sex, social media, Netflix. And we all do this to soothe or to make ourselves glorious, to make ourselves matter, to substantial, to have some weight in our lives. And our world is eager to give loads of advice of how to do this. Or to say, here's a therapy you really need. Try these few steps, and this is what's going to make it better. Try some yoga. Try eating better. Try a little red wine. Try transcendental meditation. You know, try this new dating app. It's going to make you feel better. Check your horoscope. Try a personality test. All those things are nice. Some of them are great. They're real fun. Okay? If you know me, you know I like to do yoga. Okay? You, you know that. All right? But none of these could possibly be a savior. Yeah, it may be good therapy, but it is not what the gospel is. It is not what the Bible teaches, and it's not what Simeon sings about. Simeon doesn't sing about advice. Simeon doesn't tell you yoga poses. Simeon sings that there is a savior. All these things are not worth singing about. We don't even see Lizzo singing about yoga. Okay, I mean, I'm sure she could come up with something, but these are helpful, but they are not a savior. This is not the salvation that was promised to our forefathers. The problem isn't so much with having those things, but it is hoping in those things. Hoping those things will make us and give us what we ultimately crave. Redemption, salvation, someone or something to validate my existence. Christianity teaches that we're all trying to find those things in anyone other than Jesus, and we call that sin. Augustine puts it this way. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. So on the surface, we may have it together, but underneath we feel angry, anxious, or antagonistic toward others. And what is underneath even that is a disordered and misplaced love. The heart of the matter is We are loving, trusting, and hoping in all the wrong things. Israel's God and Israel, God's people, were feeling the same way. Will God come through? Will he be faithful to his promises? Is he going to show up? And Simeon says, here it is. So Simeon doesn't sing advice. He sings about God's faithfulness. He sings about good news, that God has heard his people's cry. And not because they were doing it all right. In fact, they were captive by foreign invaders, and that was evidence to the contrary, that they were getting it all wrong. But God was saving them in Jesus Christ, not because they had it all together, but because Jesus, because the Lord is faithful to his word. It's to his promises. And so no amount of advice can get you to leverage God on your side. God is not some sort of consultant that you can leverage. And so God would bring this about not just for Israel. He was going to be good, true to his promises, not just for Israel, but for the rest of the world. And so Simeon doesn't hold Jesus, doesn't, uh, doesn't hold Jesus and give advice on the situation You see, Simeon isn't there saying, oh, you know, because of this baby, we need to do these ten things. No, he sings the truth, so beautiful, so great, so piercing, so cutting, so beautiful, that no ordinary, everyday prose could possibly cut it. He's got to sing about it. Got to sing about it. 
He has to use poetry. See, to Simeon, Jesus is the rising sun for the people of Israel who were living in the coldest winter night. Jesus is the all-surpassing satisfaction for the hungry soul. Jesus is the deepest drink for the thirsty. Jesus is the existential exclamation point for the dramatic climax of all of our life stories. Jesus is the color for our monochromatic lives. Jesus is the music score for that silent film. Jesus is the missing puzzle piece that makes all others fit. Simeon's song tells us that Jesus is the only way. And someone might say, oh, come on, brother. That is narrow. You can't be so narrow with that. You know, this is, come on. There's some good things about Christianity. You know, but, come on, the only way, that's narrow. I'll say this. It's a lot like uh, it, what Christianity is saying is more like a medical diagnosis. If I were to tell you right now, uh, if you were to have one more coffee drink, you would die. If that was a medical diagnosis, you know, I don't think you would say, ooh, that's narrow. No, you'd investigate. You're like, either this guy knows what's wrong with me or he's a liar. Okay? And so what do you do? You don't just kind of like say, mm, that's narrow. No, you actually have to check out, the, check out what he's saying. And see, that's what Christianity says. It's not just advice. Advice is something you kind of get like, take or you leave. It's not just therapy. Either you do it or you don't. You continue living. What Christianity is actually saying is like, you need this. And here's the good news. Real deal, holy field, action seven news. This is what you need. But Jesus, because Jesus is the substance of our hope, he answers three important questions. What are you waiting for? How do you wait? And when does waiting end? What are you waiting for? How do you wait? And when does waiting end? At the time of Simeon, he's waiting for a savior. He goes to the one place where he expects to find a savior. God himself and dwelt and kind of lived in the temple. That is where God's meeting place with all of the world was to be in the center of a people who were to be shaped and formed so that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But yet, something was wrong. They're under foreign occupation, and so they're waiting for salvation. Uh, Isaiah 40 and 51 talks about the consolation or comfort of Israel within the context of a book called the Book of Comfort from chapters 40 through 55. It says in Isaiah 40 that this is a salvation before all peoples. That they are to be a light to the Gentiles. That this is the fulfillment of their mission. This is everything that Israel hoped for and hoped to be. Jesus is turning everything upside down though. He doesn't do it by becoming a king. He doesn't do it by becoming great. How does he do it? He does it by being received by the poor. Notice that he's received by who? Uh, whenever he was born, Joseph and Mary go out to Bethlehem and they're received by whom? Not by people in the guest room. They are not put up in a guest room because it was full, but rather they are, they, uh, Mary gives birth in a manger. And the manger scene would have been in the lower room, kind of like a, a living room for poor people where the animals at that night would also be put in whenever it was cold. And so what does that mean? Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus was received not by the rich and mighty, not in the palace, but in a cattle stall in a poor person's home. 
in a poor person's home. Not only that, we see here that they were coming according to custom to make, uh, a, a, like, a, a, to, to, uh, for purification. And when they came to the temple, you had to offer sacrifice. What was their sacrifice? Two pigeons. That's the offering of a poor person. Jesus came to the poor. And Jesus was poor. And he's received by the poor. And the poor are waiting for riches, but what are they waiting for? They're waiting for salvation. Now, some people are saying, come on, Vince. Jesus didn't talk about salvation so much. He was more of an example. You know, this makes Jesus more palatable. You know, if Jesus was just an example, if he was just another form of therapy, if he was just another form of advice, he's more palatable, and Christianity would be, you know, more liked. Which is funny. No, because the gospel writers didn't make him out to be an example to follow. Oh, no, no, no. What's his name? His name is Jesus. It means God saves or God's salvation. They call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's not advice. He's not therapy. He's actually God is what they're saying, which is kind of shocking. It's saying that he would save his people. And more than that, it doesn't say that Jesus isn't just the savior of the world, which is, you know, like, you know, it's this. I mean, he is the savior of the world, and he's a lot more than an example. You see, if he was just an example, what does that say about your ability? It says that you could do it. And I don't know about you or me. I don't know about you, but I know about me. How's that? I look in the mirror, and I realize something about myself. If it was up to me to save myself, and my friends know this too, if it was up to Vince to save himself, Vince is condemned. Vince is, Vince is gone. You know that? Why? Because I will mess up 15 minutes after the service. I will do something ridiculous. Just know myself. If it was up to my ability, it, it, I'd fail. Rather, Jesus had to come. Why? Because you have no ability whatsoever on your own. He's not just an example. He's the savior of the world. And that's what they were writing about. At this time, Israel is captive to Rome. They mourn in lonely exile here, as the the song says. The promised land isn't theirs anymore. But he comes as a comfort, as a consolation to Israel, a savior that would release them from the grip of tyranny. You see, they're feeling vacant, wait, weightless, invalid, worthless, and not worthwhile. And Simeon's song echoes this comfort from Isaiah. See, he is trained, and the listener's ears are trained to know that this is the one that they're waiting for. Here's the thing. We're all looking for someone, for something to put everything back together in our lives. We're yearning for someone to give our lives a true existential weight and substance to say that we're meaningful. We're all looking for a savior. Or as the boss, Bruce Springsteen, says, everybody has a hungry heart. And there is something to satisfy it. You know, we live in this world of do-it-yourself religions. Take a little bit from Christianity, a little bit from Eastern mysticism, a little bit of transcendental philosophy, integrate the seven halves of highly effective leaders, and lead a life where you don't need a savior. You're fine. You can be just save yourself. You know, it's just advice. But don't get me wrong. I think I side a little more with Bono from U2. Who says, I've climbed the highest mountain, I've run through the fields only to be with you, only to be with you. 
I have run, I have crawled, I've scaled these city walls, these city walls, only to be with you, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for, what I'm looking for. You see, Christianity is so much that you do these things to get up there. But rather, God had to come to us and make himself vulnerable to be received. Simeon sings that Jesus is so existentially satisfying that he can die. He is everything he had waited for his entire life. He's fulfilled. He is saved. His faith takes the finished work of Jesus in the future on the cross and his resurrection and applies it to the, his present situation. You see, Simeon is singing about vindication, value, and worth. His glory is secure in Jesus Christ. For Israel... Their glory is restored in Jesus. Their mission is fulfilled and that is extended to the world in Jesus. So what are we waiting for? What are you and I waiting for? We're all waiting for a Savior. We're all waiting for something to put our lives to rights. How do I know? It's because if you go into one of those things called a bookstore that still exists a little bit, like Barnes & Noble, you'll see a giant three-section uh, long and three bookcases of self-help. We're all longing for a Savior. See, and for many of us, we need to ask ourselves, even if we're a Christian, in our waiting and in our reflection at this time, is Jesus our Savior or am I holding out hope for something else? Am I waiting for true words from some romantic partner to tell me everything that I need to hear? Or do I just need the word of God come in flesh to Jesus Christ to tell me that I'm valuable, worthwhile, and loved? So how do we wait though? Notice Simeon has been there, it seems like he's been there for a while, and he'd been waiting for a while. How else would he sing? I mean, that's kind of crazy that he would sing this out. But what does he sing? Basically, he sings the substance of the book of Isaiah, which, what, which would mean what about Simeon? It means that he spent a lot of time listening to people, whether it be in synagogues, in the preaching that was happening there, or he'd listen to the administration of the word by, by the priest and, the, and would reflect a little bit on the sacrifices that were going on and apportion it to himself, and he'd fill himself with this. What does this mean for you and I today? What it means is this. If Simeon were alive today, waiting for Jesus Christ, do you know what he would be doing? He'd be filling his mind with the Word of God. He'd be reflecting on the sacrament. He'd be thinking about how this world is. He'd be thinking about his longings. He would understand his insecurities. And he'd see the Word of God piercing through that. And he'd meditate on it day and night. Just as Psalm 1 would say. So, this means this. It means Simeon was discipled more by the word of God and shaped more by the word of God than he was shaped by Twitter. He was shaped more by the community of faith then he was shaped by YouTube. 
That's what it means. What it means is that when we wait, we need to be able to fill ourselves, spend time telling ourselves the truth, not dwelling on lies that people have told us, things that shake our world and all those insecurities we feel because so-and-so said something. What does that person matter? They're not even glorious. Jesus is the one who comes and is the word of God spoken and he's smack dab in your life. Meditate on that. The word of God came into your life. Meditate on that. So Simeon, he's this picture of faith. He's looking out and he's singing this song. And it is formed and informed by the word of God. Simeon is living out thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It also says this of Simeon, that he was righteous and he was devout. Meaning that in his life, he conducted himself in all his relationships with justice, equity, and holiness. That means he treated people the way they were meant to be treated. It does not mean that he was sinless. But it means that he lived according to the law of God. And cared for others. He looked out for others. And it said that he was devout. He spent time in the word. Waiting in hopeful anticipation, anticipation means that you fill your mind, your heart, and your hands with God's story, his rescue, his grace, and not with moralism. It's not to get God on your side. Spends more time in God's word and living out his faith than being a Twitter culture thumb warrior. If you tell yourself that you need to obey God until your fingers bleed, then you might be living according to the wrong story. You're hearing the wrong thing. If you think Christianity is about doing, just doing the right thing, about being the right mom, the right wife, the right husband, the right dad, the right person to marry, then you're probably using Christianity as advice and not good news. We need to evaluate that. Simeon didn't go to the temple to obey God, but to worship God and love him. To tune his heart to God's heart. And as we go through all this trauma and waiting, what do we do to cope or to train our habits? See, our culture tells us you need to buy something. You need to eat something. You need to be with somebody. The Christian story, though, prepares the human heart that, to know, so that we would know that no amount of eating, drinking, sex, distraction, or Netflix could possibly save us. Only Jesus can. No amount of followers, likes, or social media, or matches on Hinge, Bumble, or t- Tinder could possibly get us what Jesus can give us, and that's true existential satisfaction. But in our day and age, like Nietzsche, we could say God is dead, and we killed him. But not so much out of technology or medicine to make God superfluous. God is dead today for many of us out of neglect. We can care less because we've made Christianity not so much about news, but rather as a therapy or a piece of advice. But that isn't the way it happens here. And so how do we learn how to wait? Waiting is like this. Our waiting is like this. It reminds me of, uh, I have four kids, 
and I have a wife I love. She's awesome. She did the prayer for the city. It reminds me of this. Uh, she tells me, I'm coming home. And if Jesus says that he is coming back, you're waiting, right? My wife says, I'm coming home. And so what does this mean? What do I do? I gather my four kids, right? Because there's one thing my wife loves. And I say to them is this. I say, kids, we need to clean up. Why? Because my wife loves a clean home. And why do I do this? Not because I want my wife to get on my good side in order that I could buy another bike because that would be cool, but because I love my wife and she loves me. And so I tell my kids, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to clean up, kids. I'm going to do the dishes. One of you needs to feed the dog. And another of you needs to sweep. And one of you needs to mop. And so we get together and we work. And what are we doing? We're waiting for mom to get home. And a lot of our waiting is not just sitting around twiddling our thumbs. Do you know what our waiting looks like? It means that we are filling our ears with the story of God. It means that we are taking action with our hands. And it's not miraculous. It's not great. It's not like do this, like become a Twitter celebrity for Christianity and for Jesus. No. Do you know what it actually looks like in our waiting? Confessing how we've wronged others. Saying I'm sorry to your family members. Being reconciled. Telling yourself the truth when someone tells you hurtful words about God's love and his vindication. That's how we wait. We don't trust our ability to know all things or do all things. We just trust that Jesus Christ loves us. See, and so when does our waiting end? When do you, you, it's when you see it with your own eyes. For Simeon, he saw Jesus with his own eyes and he held him in his hands. And so for us, by faith, we see him with our eyes and by faith, we hold him and clutch him in our arms. God made vulnerable. God made a baby. God made poor. When religion goes from one of just kind of preference to one of reality that whereby faith you're appropriating it, you're holding it, you're grasping it, realizing that Jesus is God becoming vulnerable for you, that Jesus is God made killable, Jesus is God made damnable for you. He's received by the poor. So what does this mean? When does it end? It's when you realize that you're poor and that you filled your arms. And we continue to do it so much with this self-earned, self-righteousness. We confess that and we empty it so that we may grasp him. It's when you receive Jesus for joy, with joy and realizing you can't repay him. It's when you acknowledge you're out of control and he is in control. It's when Jesus' story becomes our story and that he, the servant of Israel, is your representative and he mediates the relationship between you and God. So when God looks on you, what does he see? He sees Jesus. When God looks at your resume and the life that you have done, how does he judge you? He sees the resume 
of Jesus. And that resume can give you the value, weight, and substance of your life that your self-made resume or your CV couldn't possibly ever give you. It can only be found in Jesus. It says that Jesus is the glory to Israel, meaning that he's restored their substance, their identity, their value, their worth. They're made valuable again. And so whenever his story becomes our story, what does it look like for us? When does our waiting end? It looks a lot like when you see that trembling little girl reaching out her hand for the celebrity and there's a celebrity of great world renown and he's got a lot of glory, like, uh, I don't know, Justin Bieber. And Justin Bieber happens to reach out his hand and this trembling little girl touches his hand and she faints. And you're like, what in the world? What happened was, at one moment, his story and his glory touched her, and their stories collided. See, and she just couldn't handle it. And existentially, that is what happens on Christmas Day. The God of glory comes in like a comet into all of our world and crushes us and changes everything. You know, it's one thing to mentally assent to know this truth. It's quite another thing to make Jesus the animating principle of your life. It is one thing to, taste, to talk about the taste of honey. It is another thing to taste its sweetness on your, on your lips. It is one thing to express the power of the ocean and wax eloquent about it. It is quite another thing to feel it sweep you off your feet and steal your breath with its icy blast. It's one thing to know some facts about Jesus and is quite another thing to have encountered him. It is one thing to know about the gospel and it's quite another thing to have it pierce your soul and change everything about your world. In the postscript, Simeon says to Mary, a sword will pierce your soul. Reassuring, I know, to her. At the same time, though, this means for you and me, when you encounter Jesus, you feel your inadequacy and you know your value. You feel you're going to be torn apart and you're made more whole, though. When you encounter Jesus, you feel that all at once you are not human, but you are made more human than you have ever felt in your life. When you encounter Jesus, all at once you feel damned and justified. Simeon says Jesus will be the cause of the fall and rise, the death and resurrection, a sign to the opposed. It means judgment. And Simeon gets us all from Isaiah 53, where we learn, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, he made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man, his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his story becomes our story, our waiting ends, and he is judged and condemned, and we are judged and seen as righteous, and Simeon has to sing about it. See, when you embrace his death as your death, his life becomes your life. You fall and rise with Jesus. How do you apportion that to yourself? Well, you pray. And in that prayer, you confess your powerlessness to save yourself. You confess that all your self-salvation projects and all those things that you yearn for are just little bits that are incapable of ever fulfilling you and satisfying the hunger of your soul. You confess that you've lived in rebellion against God and self-salvation projects. And you confess that Jesus is the Lord And he is all you've ever needed. He's all you've ever wanted. So you learn, and we all learn, that Jesus is the Savior we all need. Jesus is the Savior we are waiting for. And Jesus is the satisfaction of our souls. And it is the only way we are made glorious again. It's the only way we have weight It is the only way that in this pandemic we will not be swept away when we hold on to the truth that you are loved, you are wanted, you are cared for, you are noticed, you're not alone. And I say that to myself because I need that the truth of that grace more than I need air, more than I need food. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, I pray that we would get into our hearts the goodness and truth of your salvation in Jesus Christ that makes us truly weighty, gives us substance. Be with us this week as we are with family members. Let us be kind and merciful. Give us the strength to confess where we have wronged and messed up. I pray that you would help us to be reconciled because in Jesus Christ, heaven and earth is reconciled. Help us to worship this week in new ways. To live out the true story in our head and in our heart.